0: Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Thank you, uh, thank you, Tori and Lindsay and Grace for leading us in worship, and uh, thank you, Anne, for. Reading the scripture for us this morning, um, I'd like to continue in this, this spirit of worship, especially that that song we we just sang, um, that the Lord changes what we see and what we seek. And I like li- literally when you when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, when He saves you and brings you from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, He changes what you see. You literally see the world differently. You see other people differently. You see yourself differently. And he changes what you seek, what you want, what your heart desires. And I mean, I think that song is just so perfect with what we've been exploring in Philippians chapter 3 with Paul, right? Like last week, we talked about Paul just having this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and everything else, everything about his life was was changed. He literally saw differently and what he sought after was different. And we're going to continue that, uh, exploring Paul's... um, Paul's conversion and, and, and Paul's life and what he ex- what he extols the uh, Philippians and then um, by by proxy us as well um to do that. So, let's continue in the spirit of worship. I'm going to I'm going to pray and if you would just pray with me. Father, even as we inhale and exhale, Lord, we know that you are the one sustaining us. You're the one giving us life. You're the one calling us to yourself. You're the one that is in in everything we do, everything we think, everything we say. You hold all things together by your powerful word. All things are for you and in you and through you. And Lord, we just come grateful. We just enter your presence now, thankful for what you've done. Thankful for your love, for your relationship, for your power that enables you to subject all things to yourself. Thank you for your name that you've given to us and Father, I ask right now, I ask right now that um, you would you would reorient our minds. You'd reorient our hearts. That you would unstop our ears. You would soften our hearts. And you would open our eyes so that when we hear Feel and see things ultimately we would just hear feel and see you lord as we continue exploring philippians <clears throat> that was written so many years ago i ask that we would not presume a familiarity with this text but rather we would approach it as a child ready and eager to learn what you have to teach us remove distractions lord we pray and we ask all these things for your glory, God, and for our good. And we pray all these things in your son's name, by the power of the spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Hey, Amen. There was a woman uh, named Florence Chadwick, and she was born in San Diego, California in 1918. So this is, you know, over a hundred years ago. And she was a world famous swimmer. Um, early on, she was clearly athletic. She loved sports. She loved competitions. And when she was a little girl at 10 years old, she was the youngest person ever to swim across the mouth of the San Diego Bay, which was roughly like 12 miles long, literally a 10 year old swimming 12 miles, youngest person ever to swim across the mouth of the San Diego Bay. Then as if like a Bay wasn't enough, she wanted to do a rough water race, which is like, you know, big Waves. I mean, open ocean races are just in general big. But she did a rough water race at the age of eleven, and she won it. She beat adults in it, and it was only two and a half miles. But it was two and a half miles of rough water. Then after you know making, I mean, she kept swimming, winning competitions, swimming, winning competitions. After making a name for herself in California, she kind of wanted to jump on the uh, the global platform, if you will, and she wanted to swim across the English Channel. Apparently, the English Channel was like the race to do the open ocean. Uh, race to do. So when she was 30 years old, she actually um, uh, uh, applied, tried out to swim it. And she was actually denied the opportunity because she didn't have enough you know, significant reputation. Nobody knew who she was at the point. So for two years, she swam in more open ocean races, won them, built up a, a resume, if you will. And then at 32, at the age of 32, she attempted it. She uh, tried out again and she got it. And she attempted to cross the English channel from France to England and completed it in 13 hours and 23 minutes. And it broke every single women's world record for a very long time. And it was a that that, that, Engl- that race between the uh, across the English channel is known as a marathon swim because it's literally over 20 miles long. So this woman is clearly a a uh, an athlete, if you will. So two years later, years 1952, Florence Chadwick was 34 years old and she wanted to swim the 26 mile back in California. She wanted to swim a 26 mile swim between the Catalina Island off the coast of California. To the shore of California So she set out to do it And as she was she was brought out to the Catalina Island And then she got in the water And when she got in the water She was flanked by, um, by two boats One on either side And her mom was in one of the boats But also in one of the boats In each of the boats There was a person with a gun You know to shoot off sharks in case sharks started swimming towards her. So there were, there was a person with a gun. There was a person like, you know, rowing or guiding the boat. And then her mom was in, in the boat, as in one of the boats as well. And remember, this is 1952. So this is before like, you know, GPS on your phone and things like that. So they're just kind of like looking and, and going for it. So she's swimming, she's swimming, she's swimming. About 15 hours into the swim, 15 hours into the swim, a thick fog set in. A thick fog set in so thick that she could hardly see the boats that were like a couple feet on her left and her right. And she definitely could not see the shore. Then because she couldn't see anything, she began to doubt her, her ability to finish. And her muscles were exhausted. Her body was in pain. So eventually she called out to her mom. She asked if her mom was there because she literally couldn't even see her. And she told her mom that she didn't think she could do it. Her mom encouraged her. She's like, you probably only have a little bit more to go, only a little bit more to go. Uh, just keep going. So she kept, so Florence kept swimming for another hour, but eventually after 16 plus hours of swimming, two of which were swimming in such thick fog that she couldn't see anything. She was asked to be pulled out of the water. So they pulled her out of the water and they brought her to shore. When they brought her to shore, they, she found out that she was less than a mile away from shore. She had swam over 25 miles, but didn't know it because she couldn't see the goal. She couldn't see the shoreline. So uh, a reporter, when she got to the shore, a reporter asked her what happened and why she didn't finish, which I feel like is, all I feel like that's always just like a, like such a, like a question that makes you feel so bad. Like the reporters are, hey, why did you do a terrible job? Why didn't you succeed at what you accomplished? Like, come on, be, be a little more. No, just me. Okay. Anyway, so the reporter asked her why she didn't finish and she said she had no idea where she was. So every stroke that she was swimming, she didn't, didn't know where she was. She didn't know if she was swimming in circles, if she was swimming straight, so she couldn't see the shore. So she fails that one. Two months later, after training, she said that she started picturing the coastline in her mind and she set out to do it again. So about half, two months later, she gets brought out to the Catalina Island. She starts swimming and about halfway through the swim this time, a thick fog set in again and she couldn't see anything. But this time she didn't stop, she didn't stress, she didn't freak out. And she ended up swimming the 26 miles in 13 hours and 52 minutes. Which, if she would have finished the first one, she would have beat that by three, almost three hours. So she not just succeeded, but she like excelled in this one. And so the same reporter asked her what happened two months later, asked her what happened. What changed from two months ago uh, when she failed to this time when she not only succeeded, but excelled. And she said that what she did is she kept the image of the shore in her mind. So so so, what she did is she put in her mind's eye the image of the, the goal, the shore, the end, and she just put it, I don't know, maybe 20 yards, a half mile, whatever, a half mile in front of her, her mind's eye, and she just kept swimming. And she just, because she pictured the end, she pictured the goal, by keeping her eye on the prize, she was able to not just finish the race, but excel and thrive. By keeping the goal, the prize in her mind's eye, she succeeded beyond her wildest imaginations. Now, this sounds like great, and you know, you and I aren't like ultra marathon swimmers, so it, it kind of is hard. But but I think there's a there's a beautiful picture of life here, right? Because sometimes in life, sometimes in life, we have a goal. Everybody, everybody has a goal. Everybody has a shoreline. Everybody has something that they're striving towards. That they're you know, to use the illustration, they're swimming towards. So the question is, one, what shore are you swimming? What's your shoreline that you're swimming towards? What is the prize that you're striving for? What is the end goal that you're keeping uh, in your mind's eye? Or the other question is, are you surrounded by such a thick fog that you don't even know which way you're swimming? You don't know if you're swimming in in circles, if you're swimming in a straight line. You can't even see the people that are around you to, to help you. Life is, life is cloudy right now. We've all experienced that. We've all experienced both such clarity at the shore that we know exactly where we're going and we know, we know how to get there. And we've also experienced a thick fog setting in where we don't know which way is up, which way is down, which way is left, which way is right. Paul experienced uh, this and he actually talks about it. He talks about to be a Christian means to have a goal. Like to, like when you say, "What I am a Christian, what does that mean that your goal is? Last week he said, my goal is to know him. This week he's going to talk about the prize that he strives for. To be a Christian means to strive for something. It has to mean to strive for something. It means to pursue something. You can't just be a Christian and just like, you know, float in the water. You can't just be a Christian and just like accidentally get more holy or accidentally love Jesus more. Like you actually have to do, You there has to be a goal in our mind's eye. You know, one of the, uh, Stephen Covey has this leadership book and one of the things he says is that uh, start with the end in mind. Like when you look at your li- a good a good practice is is asking yourself this, what type of person, what kind of person do I want to be in? one year? Do I want to be in five years? Do I want to be in 10 years? Do I want to be at the end of my life? What kind of a person do I want to be? Now, that's great for like, you know, anybody can ask. You don't have to follow Jesus in order to ask yourself that question. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then the question actually has way more significance. What is the shoreline that you're striving for? What type of person, what type of Christ follower do you want to be in one year, five years, ten years? Because if you have that in your mind's eye, if you have Jesus in your mind's eye, I want to be more like Jesus in a year. I want to be more loving in a year, more patient in a year, more filled with the fruit of righteousness in a year. I want to be less stressed, but not because of some, you know, like therapeutic idea or, or, or self-help idea. I want to be less stressed because the life that Jesus promises me is not one of stress and fear, but one of confidence and stability. That's what I want. So we all have this goal in our mind. The question is, as a Christian, what is it, and then how do we get there? And those two questions are exactly what Paul Paul asks us today, or Paul answers today. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Philippians three. I'm actually going to start in verse ten to read a few uh, and read a few verses, and then that'll catch us up to speed uh, that we for what we're starting in, in verse twelve today. So look at uh, Philippians chapter three, verse ten. It says this: My goal. This is Paul writing. My goal my end, my telos is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. Okay. This is, this is really interesting. Of all people, to have like reached the goal, I would assume, I would assume that Paul would be the one to reach the goal, right? Like, like Paul scholars estimate that at this point in Paul's life, he's about 50 years old, maybe a little older. So here's he's nearing the end of his ministry, which means what, which means that he's planted dozens of churches, he has, he has evangelized to and witnessed to and, and seen the Lord's salvation to probably hundreds, if not thousands of people. This dude has gone through the ringer because of Christ. Like, and he's saying, he's saying, I, I'm not there yet. Yeah, I, I haven't made it. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, what have I, done? like, if Paul is, Paul is this, this radical evangelist and he's saying, I haven't made it, man, what does that mean for me? He says not not that I'm I have already reached the goal or i am already perfect but he says what I take every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Now what why why does he make look at what Paul says and look at what Paul doesn't say why does Paul make every effort to take hold of it he makes every effort to take hold of it because he has been taken hold of by Christ period he makes every effort because Christ has made every effort right paul is saying that he needs to to train really hard in order to become the person that he already is now what does he not say he doesn't say i need to i i need to make every effort to take hold of it period right it, what what we do, look at the order i mean this is the same in, in philippians too look at the order of this he is striving he is making every effort because he has been taken hold of by christ he he does not we cannot you and i must not flip that order and say i need to take hold of it in order that i can be taken hold of by christ What is in essence is paul saying in essence paul is saying that he needs to become who he already is. He needs to take hold of of Christ because he already has Christ, right? And this is the message for you and I. We need to become who we already are in Christ. Well, who who, who are you in Christ? Who does Christ say that you are? Christ says that you're forgiven. Okay, well, I am forgiven. So now I need to become a forgiving person. Well, I am forgiven, so now I need to forgive others. I don't need to forgive others who have wronged me so that I can be forgiven. It's the opposite. It's I am a forgiven son and, or daughter of the Lord, and so therefore I forgive those who have wronged us. Who are you in Christ? You're loved. You're loved. Which means what? That we abound in love. We don't abound in love so that we can get love in return. We already have it. You already have it. You already have, you already have been taken hold of by Christ. Now you live in it. Who are you in Christ? You're filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. Guys, you already have the fruit of the Spirit. Now you need to produce the fruit of the Spirit. You don't produce the fruit of the Spirit in order to get the Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit, so you produce the fruit. I, you know, what are the fruit of the Spirit? Patience. Man, your patience, you're you're patient in Christ because why? Because you have been given Christ's patience through his imputed righteousness so that now you have become. Paul is saying here, I take every effort. I make every effort to take hold of it. Not so that I can, that Christ can reward me and I can be deserving of it. But so that because rather, because Christ has taken hold of me. Paul is saying you need to become who you already are in Christ. He keeps going. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. Again, that's like, whew. What are you, how's your and I days ago? How, how was your day going? But one thing I do, he keeps going verse 13. This is what I do. I forget what is behind and I reach forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal, the prize I pursue as my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. So he's saying everything that is behind me, I forgot what was behind him right? What was behind him was what he talked about last week of, of his, all his, his resume of death, basically. Like he was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was uh, persecuting the church. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the tribe of Benjamin, all that. He forgets, he forgets all that because he's pursuing as his goal, the prize. Now look at that word pursue. This is really cool. At the beginning of verse 14, I pursue as my goal. That word pursue is actually the same word in Greek as the word for persecute. In verse six, if you remember, Paul said that uh, he says, you know, regarding zeal, I was a persecutor of the church that were there's just pursuer. And obviously, like to pursue something for evil means that you're you're persecuting it. But I just I just think it's fascinating because why? What was his life before Christ? He was pursuing something as his goal. For him, his goal was the death of the church. He was pursuing the church. He was persecuting the church. He was pursuing the church in order to destroy her, in order to you know kill her, in order to uh, uh, get rid of her, right? And now he is saying, what's his new pursuit? His new pursuit, I am actually pursuing, I'm chasing, I'm swimming towards his goal, which is the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Jesus. These are really churchy words, so what does that mean? What is the prize promised? promised to us what is the prize that paul's looking for what does paul want what gets paul out of bed in the morning what makes paul be so crazy that he would be willing to risk his life on multiple occasions in order for this prize what is the prize well we will get there in a second keep hang with me how's that for anticlimactic uh moment uh we're gonna get to the prize in a second it's at the end of this at the end of this section the prize is at the end of the section so let's keep pursuing uh the prize he keeps going on verse 15 therefore let all of us who are mature think this way and if you think differently about anything god will reveal this also to you in any case we should live up to whatever truth we have attained So Paul is saying like this is – if you're mature, you're going to think this way. If you're complete, if you're perfect, you're going to think this way. Oh, by the way, um, real quick, back in uh, verse 12, Paul says, not that I've already achieved the goal or I'm already perfect. That word perfect is basically the same word as the word mature. It's it's not like perfection like, oh, I don't sin anymore. It's more like perfection like, oh, yes, I I have been made complete. I am made whole. I have – I've reached uh, the desired end of, of my life. So Paul is saying that if anybody who is, who, who is at that place, uh, think this way. Think what way? Think the same way uh, of Christ. Now, a couple things. First, notice uh, uh, where else Paul calls people to think the same way, right? If you remember Philippians 2.2, 2, Paul says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. And here he says therefore let all of us who are mature think the same way. Now, is Paul advocating for for groupthink? Is Paul just saying like, well, if you're a Christian, you just have to have all the same theological ideas about, you know, who God is and we have to agree on every single little detail ever? Absolutely not. Paul is not advocating for just like this this groupthink. If if Paul if Paul truly wanted Christians to just think about everything in the exact same way and have no diversity of thoughts or opinions, two things would happen. One, there would actually be no unity, right? There would be no unity. Unity requires diversity. You can't be unified if you're the exact same right? This is why, I mean, you just even think of like colors, like when colors complement each other and they, they make things like look good. It's because there are multiple colors that are working together to make a painting or a screen or whatever look good, right? So if it was just uniformity, if it was just like the exact same thing, it would just be bland, right? You cannot have unity without, uh, diversity. Otherwise it would just be, everybody would, you know, be it would be uniformity. It would be unanimous. It would be it would be boring. So Paul is not saying, "Hey, everybody think the same way." Because if he was saying everybody think the same way, there would be no need for unity. That would be the first thing that would happen. The second thing that would happen is if Paul was advocating for groupthink, there would be an infinite, an infinite number of denominations, right? Because every time people disagreed on something, they would just they would just start their own church. And newsflash, everybody disagreed. No, no two people agree on every issue, right? So he's not advocating for a group thinking. So what is he saying here? If he's not saying think the same way as in have all the same brains and be brainwashed, what he, what is he saying here? Well, th- this word for think is really a a really idea of living in the world as if we're all pursuing the same goal. It's the idea of living in the world as if we're all like pursuing the same goal. So one scholar said he translates it. Uh, he translated thinking, feeling and acting right let's go back to the uh to the swimming example to think the same way is to swim towards the same shoreline now it doesn't matter what kind of you know stroke you're swimming with some of you guys could be swimming with a backstroke Somebody swimming with a breaststroke Somebody swimming with a freestyle whatever you know i'm sure there's more ways of of swimming somebody somebody could be in a boat right they're just smarter than all of us uh but but the the point isn't that we're all like you, you know uh unanimous in the type of the stroke that we swim with. The point is that we are all pursuing the same shoreline. And then look at what he says. If you think differently, God will reveal this also to you. If you think differently, as in, if you're not unified on what is the end goal here, then God will reveal this to you. This is interesting. This is profound. Why? Because whose responsibility is it To change people, according to this verse. Whose responsibility is it to get people to live and think and feel and act a certain way? Whose responsibility is it to get other people to live up to God's call and pursue God's goal? Whose responsibility is it? God's which means whose responsibility is it not mine or yours, right? Of all the people who could have been the one to reveal God's goal and God's prize to them, Paul would have been at the top of the list right? And what does Paul say? Paul, of all the people, Paul could have been like, hey, you know, this is what it means to be mature, and you need to think this way, and this is what it means to follow God. And what does Paul say here that he should do? He says that it is God who will reveal this to you. What is it called when we try to reveal God's goal and prize to people? It's called spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Oh, well, you know, I just, I I noticed that the way that they I notice that the way that they parent is uh, is just not the best, and it's you know, not, and I remember I used to parent that way, but then then I became mature and and God revealed, and so I need to tell them how to how to parent properly because they parent differently than me, and I did that when I was immature, but now I'm mature, so so clearly I need to help them. That's spiritual pride. Oh well. I, I, uh, I used to spend my money that I used to think about money that way. And I used to spend my money that way. And, and that was when, that was before That was when I was really immature and I would just, I, I, I would just wasn't walking with the Lord uh, very well there. And then since then I've, I've grown and now I spend my money this way. And I can tell that those people, they still, these people in my small group, these people in the same uh, aisle as me right now, they, they still view money that way. And so I need to, I need to let them know, I need to tell them uh, how to, how a Christian would spend their money. No, no, that is spiritual pride. Far be it from us here at AGC that we would have spiritual pride enough to say, you know, I have been, I have made it, I've made it. And so I'm going to tell you how to make it. Paul did not do that. Jesus did not do that. There's no spirit of condemnation here either. It's not like Paul saying like, oh, you guys, if you think differently, it's okay. You'll catch up eventually. No, this is a loving, heartfelt uh, uh, need and, and a And desire that Paul has for these people. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. He keeps going. Verse 17 Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Paul wants us to follow his his example. Paul really wants us to follow his example. He wants us to imitate him, he wants us to do what he does. Now, you you know what? uh, I was thinking about this. You know what gets in the way of imitation? I truly believe this. What gets in the way of imitating somebody or doing the same things that they do is admiration, right? Think about it. When you admire someone, think about somebody that you admire. Whether it's, which is a good thing, by the way. I think we should admire Paul and Jesus and, and people in general. But it gets in the way of imitation because think about, um, you know, a professional athlete or. A author or a Nobel Peace Prize winner or whatever—like those are people that you're like, man, I admire. Like you would say, like society admires them, or I admire them, or, or you you hear the life of a missionary uh, who gave his life uh, serving overseas um, to an unreached people group, and you're like, man, I admire that. What happens when you admire somebody? Most often, what happens is that you actually hold them at a distance, right? Like, like when you admire somebody, you like, you distance yourself from them. And then therefore you inevitably think that you can't accomplish the same things that they can accomplish. If I admire somebody, odds are they're, they're at a distance. And then therefore I, I, well, oh, that's just them. That's just the way they live. That's just their situation in life. That's just their gifting. So I can't, I can't do that. Right now, obviously this breaks down because, you know, I admire some pro football players, but I mean, if you look like me, you're not going to be a pro football player. So, but you get my point. Like when, whenever you admire somebody, the temptation is to distance yourself from them, and then therefore you can't imitate them. I admire Paul, and I think all of us and should. You know, we I think we all do, and I think we all should. He started churches. He wrote large portions of the New Testament. He's an example to us. But here he says, "I want you to imitate me, not admire him." Right when I admire Paul, I think, "Wow, he was he was great man." I really admire Paul, but I could never, pfft, I could never do something like that. Man, Paul, I really admire him. He was sold out for the gospel. He became a homeless itinerant preacher, and that's just whew. man. I admire that, but wow, I can't, I can't imitate that. Man, Paul, that guy did not care what people thought about him, but that's just, I admire that, but that's just not my personality. That's just not realistic for me. Man, it seems that Paul Paul suffered with such a steady, confident joy. Man, I really admire that, but I, I, I can't do that. That's just not my disposition. I struggle with this, that, and the other. Man, may we not just admire Paul. May we imitate him. He says, join in imitating me. Guys, do you realize that it's possible to imitate Paul? It is possible for you to have the secret of contentment so that no matter what comes your way, you just say, thank you. No matter if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're going through a job crisis, if you're losing if you're losing familial relationships or friend relationships, whatever, you can just say, glory be to God. It's possible, guys. And then he says, look what else he says. He says, uh, pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Do you know that one, in Philippi, there were examples uh, like Paul, and two, in our church today, there are examples like Paul. We, we have been blessed here at AGC to have a, a multi-generational congregation. We have young people. We have old people. Guys, if you are, you know, young, if you're younger, even younger in your faith or younger just in life, there are so many people who have been walking with the Lord for years and years. Guys, admire them. Hold them. Hold them up. Pay careful. Atten- Paul says, pay careful attention to them. Knock on their door. Literally ask them to get lunch or coffee or whatever and just like hear their stories. And for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a while, if you're older, seriously, go find a young person and say like, Hey, this is what, this is what it looks like to imitate God in this situation. This is what it looks like to imitate Jesus, to imitate Paul, right? I mean, Philippians itself is literally an example, example to us. You have Jesus as the exemplar, Right in Philippians two, he didn't he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he self emptied, he self humbled, and he became obedient to the point of death. Then you have two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, just normal dudes who did the same thing. They put the needs of others above the needs of themselves. And then finally we have Paul's example, where he had everything that he wanted to, and then he he emptied himself and he humbled himself. He became a self emptying, self humbling, obedient, loving person. And guys, there are people in there are people today who are doing the exact same thing. And Paul's command here is imitate that. Have that same posture. Have the same mind of Christ in yourselves and amongst your church. But we also know that as many good examples as there are, there are also that many bad examples. He keeps going in verse 18. For I have often told you, so, so, you know, uh, 16 and 17 or verse 17 is, is a positive example of, of living a self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient love. 18 and 19 is a negative example. He keeps going verse 18 for I've often told you. And now I say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. Paul wept over these people. You ever cried over something before? Have you ever shed tears over something before? Was it the fact that people are living as enemies of the cross of Christ? Imitate me, Paul says. Ask the Lord right now. Lord, give us this kind of passion. Give us this heart. Now, it's interesting. Paul here says enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't say enemies of Christ. He says enemies of the cross of Christ. Why does he add that little phrase cross right there? Why does he say enemies of the cross? What are they enemies of? They are enemies. Guys, this is so, so profound. They are enemies of a downward mobility. They are enemies of a self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient love. What What is the expression? What is God's revelation to man? What is the ultimate revelation of love? It's the cross, right? it is a downward, look i mean look at the think of the uh, the theme of philippians the way up is down the first portion of of jesus's trajectory was downward self humbling self, humbling, self emptying obedience right that's our that's our position and our uh, uh mobility uh, until we die right and then the cross is the ultimate symbol of love but it required death and these enemies are not just enemies of Christ they are they they're enemies of the the fact that the way up is down the, what they want to say is they want to say the way up is up this is how you this is how you live you just keep you know keep walking up the ladder and and striving they are swimming in the wrong direction because they do not believe that to be a self-emptying self-humbling person is a good thing they are enemies of the cross of Christ they are enemies of death which will ultimately, ultimately lead to their death. Right. But Paul is saying that, no, no, no we, we, we aren't these people. You need to be you need to be of these people. But also I'm crying over these people because they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And look at the words he has for them. Their end is destruction. Whew, their God is their stomach. What a word picture. Their glory is in their shame. That's exactly what Paul expressed uh, last week when he talked about all the glory that he had. He had all these things, but they ended up being a loss to him for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And then he says they are focused on earthly things. They are going and swimming the wrong direction. But then what does Paul remind the Philippians of in verse 20 and 21? He reminds them of the goal. He reminds them of the prize. He says this, verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there—the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go back to this illustration: the illustration of swimming in the water and looking, keeping the shore uh, line in your mind. Obviously, all illustrations break down at some point, but i, I don't know why. But this blew my mind this week when I when I, when I read this. He says that our citizenship is in heaven, right? So we're really in the water, but where we really belong is on the land, right? Or, you know, we're really in this world, but where we where we really belong is in heaven. But what he doesn't say is he does not say our citizenship is in heaven and we can't wait to get there. He doesn't say that. He says our citizenship is in heaven and we are waiting for a savior from there. Whoa. Why is that significant? A lot of times Christians think that to be a Christian means to leave the earth and when you die, your soul magically departs from your body and you get to go up to heaven and get rid of the earth and you'll just float around one day. That is not at all what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, yeah, we're here on earth, but heaven is up there. But eventually we're gonna we're, we're waiting for heaven to come back down to earth. One scholar says, you know, he says, I think a lot of Christians are going to be surprised when they're going up to heaven when they die and they see that Jesus is actually coming back down onto earth right? The hope of the Christian gospel is not that we get to just float around one day. The hope of the Christian gospel is that heaven will be reunited with this earth and we will be raised from the dead, right? That's why the resurrection is so significant. The resurrection is what the future is going to look like. Uh, Jesus' disciples, when he was walking around, Uh, after he was raised from the dead. They recognized him, but they didn't recognize him, you know? Like he was the same, but he was different. It's like a seed that goes into the ground and then it becomes a tree. It's like the same, but it's different. That's what resurrection life is going to be. And he even says it in verse 21. Look at verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. He will transform it. He will change us here. He is going to change our actual literal physical bodies of our humble condition. Now this word humble really means more like humiliated, right? And you and I have experienced this humiliated condition. There's disease, there's sickness, there's decay, there's death it's, it's bad. There's a lot of, there's, we are in this humiliated condition, but God isn't going to leave us here. Jesus is not going to leave us in this humiliated condition. He's actually going to transform us into the likeness of his glorious body. Jesus was the first fruits from among the dead. That's why he says the first fruits. It's like, this is the picture of what heaven is. And guys, this is the prize. This is the goal that Paul has in mind for Paul. Life in Christ is both available now and it's going to be even more available when we if and when we pursue a downward mobility. If and when we empty ourselves of ourselves and we humble ourselves and we obediently love God and love each other. The hope and the prize that Paul is talking talking about is resurrection life, literal bodily resurrection life. Why? Why is it the hope? Because guys, that means that death does not have the final answer. That means that in order to truly live, we must die. Because this life, this life is not all that there is. The world is telling you this life is all that there is. So grab on with both hands and have a fun ride and try to just have as much fun as you can or get as many things in comfort and stability as you can. And what is Paul saying? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Because Our city, where we live, our commonwealth is not here. It's elsewhere. It's in the heavens where Jesus currently is. Jesus is in the physical body right now, sitting at the right hand right now in 2022, sitting at the right hand of God, the father almighty, and he's going to come back and he's going to transform our either dead, decaying or humiliated bodies whenever he returns and the joy and the hope and the prize. Is that by pursuing the cross, by living a cruciform life, we attain the resurrection from the dead. And God will transform our bodies. And we will live what the Bible says, we will live an everlasting life. That's everlasting life. That's life and life abundant. We have a foretaste now. We have a taste of it now, but one day we will dine with the king it's like when you're at thanksgiving dinner thanksgiving's coming up and and your mom calls you into the kitchen or your grandma calls you into the kitchen and offers you a little nibble of the turkey or the mashed potatoes right that's what we have now we have the taste of it but we we can't wait to dine and feast with the lord one day and so what's the application what does paul say because of all this because of the goal and the prize and pursuing it what does he say chapter four verse one so then my dearly loved my longed for brothers and sisters my joy, my crown. Look at that. Look at that language of love he has for these people. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Guys, we know what's coming for us. For those of us who are in Christ, we know what the reward is for a cruciform, self emptying self-humbling love we know that there it's so rewarding it's it's far better to give than to receive now and we know that one day death will not have the final answer sin will not have the final word because god will vindicate those of us who are in christ and so we we wait for a savior from there but we also pursue we wait and we pursue we wait and we get ready at the same time and so i don't know where you're at maybe uh Maybe you don't know which shoreline you're pursuing. Maybe you're just, you're lost and you're swimming and, and you don't know where to go. I mean, Paul's, Paul's, Paul's uh, conclusion is very clear. The goal and the prize is Christ himself. Maybe you know the direction you're going, but the fog is setting in and recently you've just been weary. You've been lost. Use the, meditate on this passage use this as an example to know and a reminder to know what our true prize is what your true prize is as a christian and maybe right now you're you're you see the shoreline and you can't wait to get there you can't wait for the people that you're going to see you can't wait for the lord himself to clothe you to crown you to say well done good and faithful servant so as we reflect on the cross. From this passage, it's it's uh, it's no accident that we we celebrate the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving meal. Uh, the literal uh, Eucharist means Thanksgiving. It's not Thanksgiving Day. Uh, the Thanksgiving, the giving of thanks meal uh, in communion, in the, the bread and the cup. And so um, I'm going to pray, and, and when I'm done praying, we're going to um, take communion together. But as I pray, if you're comfortable, if you would just open your hands, uh, maybe on your lap, just palms up and uh towards the towards the sky just as a posture of of an openness and a receptiveness to what god is doing and so father with open hands and open hearts i ask that you would keep the prize at the front of our minds that you would uh You would remind us that we are taking every effort, we're making every effort, but only because you have taken hold of us. Father, I pray that you would give us crystal clear awareness of the hope of following you, of being in you. And ultimately, Lord, we pray for endurance to stand firm. As we celebrate, um, Lord, communion together, I ask that this would... You, you would just remind us once again of, of your love. And this would not be something to do routinely uh, and it become banal and forgetful, but rather, Lord, I pray that you would again awaken and refresh our desire to live a self-emptying, self-humbling, obedient life. Give us the power to do that, we pray. pray all this in your son's name, by the power of the Spirit.